0: Morning, guys. Good morning. If you guys don't have Bibles, we have some ushers that are going to get you guys Bibles. We have a lot of passages we're going to read today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing in two seconds. Um, I'll get myself situated, and then we will pray. I'll tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing today and then for the next, um, I don't know, 10 to 12 weeks or so. So let me pray, and we will jump in. God, thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for the love, God, that you have shown to us that we just celebrated like last week of the resurrection of Jesus. God, that we've been swept into something new that you invite us daily, moment by moment to trust you. And God, uh, I realize that many of us here perhaps are on just different journeys. Some of us are totally in. We love Jesus. We follow you. We know and have a certainty of our destiny. God, others, maybe we're just still considering, trying to figure out, make sense of what it means to follow Jesus, or even who you are, or even if you're real. God, thank you that no matter who we are, no matter where we're at in this journey, that you welcome us all to the table. So God, uh, pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts this morning about who you are and what you're up to in this world, and how you desire to invite us into it, to trust you. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. So, have you ever noticed that sometimes Christians can say really weird things, um, not only through the words that they say, but sometimes even through the phrases that they communicate or things in which they just talk about. Christians sometimes can have very odd things in which they communicate. There's at least two reasons for that. I think number one is some of the things that Christians are prone to say are things that are kind of mimicked straight out of the Bible. And that can be a problem because we're talking about a book that's upwards of 3,500 years old, and we live not 3,500 years ago, which means we're looking at a book that's very ancient, and we're using phrases and ideas and concepts that don't make a whole lot of sense in today's world. The second reason is pretty obvious that Christians can be straight-up odd and weird, the fact of the matter is. Um, The reality is, is that, like, Any subculture, any group, or any community, they have their own vocabulary of terms. So that shouldn't be shocking. Christians shouldn't have to apologize. You know, we have our own terminology. That should not be a shocking reality. But the fact of the matter is, is it is helpful for us to at least, first of all, identify the fact that sometimes there are things that Christians can say that are a little bit hard to follow, uh, maybe in some ways even confusing. But the reality is, is that the Bible has its own vocabulary. And for some of us, the words and some of the ideas and concepts that are in the Bible um, may be somewhat familiar to us because maybe you were brought up in a Christian home or you took some sort of religious class. Um, for some of us, some of these phrases and ideas and concepts might be overly familiar to us. And that's a really bad place to be because overfamiliarization uh, means that ideas lose their potency. The other way in which we can think about these things is some of them can be straight-up confusing. Like we read ideas in the Bible or hear words Within scripture, and they make zero sense to us because we don't live in that world anymore. So, for example, a word that comes to my mind is like the word atonement. When was the last time you used the word atonement? So I thought, none of us did. But it's a really important word that actually plays in the storyline of the Bible. And in order for us to understand what the Bible is all about and the storyline of the Bible behind it, it's important for us to tackle some of these words, to think about them, to critically consider them, to unpack them, to follow their train of thought through scripture itself. Now, what we have been doing on Sunday mornings for the past, you know, almost half a year is we've been reading as a church through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Right now, if you're following along, you should be somewhere around Samuel, somewhere around there. It's the story of David and others and the kingly work that's happening within the people of Israel and the fact of the matter is, is on Sunday mornings, along with that, in combination with that, we've been also been trying to go through a series of teachings that help equip you to read Scripture, to understand Scripture, but also to help bring you into the storyline of the Scripture, to understand the overarching narrative of what the Bible is all about. And so, in line with what, in that whole thing we've been calling the Year of Biblical Literacy, so in line with the Year of Biblical Literacy, we've wanted to just continue to explore what are some other ways in which we can provide some maybe helpful tools for you to more effectively read Scripture and understand the story of the Bible. And this brings us into where we're going to be heading for the next 10 to 12 weeks, is I wanted to spend some time thinking about the words that make up what we call Christianity and call this whole entire series the language of faith. So over the next several weeks and a couple months or whatever, we'll be looking at a variety of words that are really important to the main storyline of the Bible itself, but like I said earlier, a lot of them, for many of us, may be very familiar, overly familiar, or straight-up confusing. So I thought it'd be good for us to spend some time thinking about this. Now, we do have a teaching team of people that are gonna be helping and being a part of this. I'm really excited about that because we've got a lot of great Bible teachers in the church that you guys are gonna have a unique chance to be able to hear from over this next season. So it's not just gonna be me, which that's a great blessing, I think, for all of us. But the point of the matter is, is I want to explore some of these words. So today, the word that I want to focus on is the word glory. And before we actually get to that, I thought it'd be kind of fun to just have a, have a, have a little fun this morning. Because church should be fun as well. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to just explore some of the Christian terms and ideas. And maybe phrases or lingo that Christians are oftentimes prone to saying. So this is kind of where like audience participation comes in. So for you... If you are a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're not even a follower of Jesus, um, what are some of the phrases and ideas or even words that you've heard Christians use that are weird, it's confusing, or odd, or out of place? Any Anybody? Fill the spirit, okay? And that's that's a great one. Um, maybe you hear some Christians are like, "I'm filled with the spirit." They're filled with the spirit. Like, what in the world does that mean? Actually, that's a, a Bible phrase. I'm not going to unpack all these things, but that's a Bible phrase. But to some people, like, that's totally foreign. Like, what in the world does that mean? Filled with the spirit. It's odd language. Uh, what are some other ones? You we're going one. What am I here? Uh, living like a servant. Living like a servant. That's awesome. Like that's such a compliment. Totally living like a servant. But you're right. Like, what other context are the contexts you're going to say that? You're not going to like walk up to someone at work and be like, "You're such living like a servant." Thank you. Yeah, totally. It's kind of like, how would you use that? Living like a servant. Anyone else? Sanctification. Sanctification. Yeah, big word. It's a Bible word. Um, But again, again, or a theological Bible word. But what does it mean? You had one back there? Take up your cross. cross. That's a great one. Take up your cross. Again, if you're not a Christian or someone who is not familiar with Christian terminology, you hear Christians are like, take up your cross, bro. Like, 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 what does that even mean? Take up your cross. What are some other good ones? So on fire? Soul. Soul on fire. Yeah, I even heard like people say, like, dude, you're so on fire. Okay. <laughs> what? So on fire. Is that a bad thing? Good thing? Yeah, it's good. What else? On fire, for God. on fire for God. Yeah. What else? Was it good? Sin? Sin? Yeah. Sin is actually one of the words we're going to look at because it's one of those really important words that there's a variety of meaning and ideas and concepts that people kind of fill that word up with and baggage that that word actually has and so we want to try to dispel some of the myths that kind of are formed around words like that yeah love, love on someone. <laughs> yeah <laughs> love on someone yeah that's great I, I like I like blessed like I feel so blessed like, that's actually not a I mean, technically, it is a Bible concept, but like, I don't think you read it if anybody in the Bible being like, "I'm so blessed." Like, but again, there's like Christian terminology, so we can keep going on and on because this, this, we literally spend the entire ten weeks just doing this, right? We're not though. You're welcome. So, I want to jump in and begin to take a look at this word, glory, and try to make some sense of what this is. This word, glory, is a very important word. Next slide. Um, I want to kind of unpack a little bit about what this word is. It actually comes from, let's kind of geek out a little bit on the actual uh, Hebrew word. It's actually the Hebrew word, kavod, kavod um, and it's spelled kavod, but it's actually kavod. And it can, be, it can mean like abundance or honor or glory. We'll look at a bunch of different passages in which this word is actually used. because so one of the best ways to understand a particular word is to actually read it in its context, understand how does the word actually make sense in its original context, Um, It's actually used between 300 to 360 times, depending upon what translation you have. Whether it be like NIV or uh, English Standard Version or Living Bible, whatever. About 300 to 360 times. I like to think of it as a gateway word, right? Think of like some drugs are like a gateway drug. It's not a drug. This is a gateway word. So it's a gateway word that actually opens up an entire world for you. A new world is what this word is all about. In fact, what we're going to find out today is that this word is so important to the entire Bible storyline. That it actually introduces us not only to God, but to humanity and why humanity has become broken as it is. And how God has actually stepped into the brokenness of humanity to undo the brokenness and the vandalization and all the things that has gone wrong to make it right again. In order to restore it, to restore it, that's even a word, back to its original glorious state. So this is a really important word that plays in the entire storyline of the Bible. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to just jump right in. So hopefully you guys have your Bibles all ready to go. There's a lot of passages we're going to be looking at. If there are places that you have no idea where they're at in the Bible, in other words, books in the Bible you're not familiar with, it's totally fine to use the table of contents. That's okay. There's no guilt or judgment. I I say that because I know when I first became a Christian, like, I, I was part of this church where everybody, like, read the Bible and seemed like everybody is very fluent in reading their Bible, and here I was this, this kid that had no idea. They're like, Psalms, like, I don't, what, I don't know where Psalms is, where I find that, and I uh, felt really, like, bad about having to use the table of contents. So if that's you, it's totally cool. Don't worry about it. It doesn't mean anything about where you're at with Jesus, okay, or how much God loves you. But the point of the matter is, is there's a lot of passages we're going to read. I'm going to give you two freebie passages up front that we'll have up on the screen. The rest of them will actually not be on the screen. You'll just need to look them up in the Bible or in your app or whatever. So the very first usage of this word glory or kavod in the Bible actually is found in Genesis chapter 31, verse 1. And interestingly enough, it actually has nothing to do with God because we oftentimes we think of the glory of God. This particular word uh, begins to shape our understanding of what this word kavod actually means. So Genesis 31, verse 1 says, As Jacob learned... That Laban's sons were grumbling about him. And Jacob was, has robbed our father of everything, they said. He has gained all his wealth. That particular word is kavod, at our father's expense. So I'm not going to go into the back story of Jacob, but he was kind of this conniving guy, this thief, and he did lots of bad things, and this, he's being accused of doing bad things. But what's interesting is he's actually being accused of stealing the kavod of his father-in-law. So... I don't know what you think about when you think of the word kavod, but hopefully the word kavod or glory involves something that plays in the storyline. At least it should. If it's a biblical definition of the word glory, it should. So next appearance of this is in Genesis chapter 45, verse 13. This has to, tell, this has to do with the story of a guy by the name of Joseph. If you're familiar with him, he was sold into slavery. He kind of went from being a slave or a servant um, and basically has, has risen to this incredible high level of esteem and honor and power and authority throughout the nation of, of Egypt. And um, what ends up happening in the story is his, his brothers, who actually a long time ago sold him into slavery. It was a really horrible story. Um, they, he, he reveals himself to his brothers and everyone's saved and sort of a, uh, sort of a happy ending for the moment. Um, what is happening now, they are, they're being instructed by Joseph to basically go tell their father that he's okay. So here's what they say. Go tell my father of my honored position here in Egypt. Describe to them everything that you've seen. So the word honor is the Hebrew word kavod. So again, what does glory mean? Well, in the first case, glory apparently means something to do with abundance or wealth. In this particular case, it has to do with this idea of honor and prestige or position or power or authority. So... Now, I want to keep on going and trying to help us rethink about this word. In Exodus chapter 16, this might be a little bit more familiar how you tend to think of the word glory because, again, I think in many Christian circles, when the word glory is uh, described, it's, it's a hard word to describe. It's a hard word to actually you know, give any tangible example of what the word means. This is why we're trying to follow some of these passages to make sense of this. In uh, Exodus chapter 16, verses 7 and 10, this is the situation that's going on with Moses. He's in this dialogue with God. It says, in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he's heard your complaint against him. So the children of Israel, they're complaining against God. Um, God brings them out of the, you know, the uh, enslavement of the people of, of Egypt. Now they're kind of in the wilderness. They're free. But they're trying to make sense of how do we, how do we live in this new reality out in the wilderness? There's no food. There's no you know, all the stuff that they had in abundance back in Egypt, now they're living in the wilderness. There's literally nothing, and yet God has been providing for them and taking care of them, but they're complaining, you know. They're kind of like you and I. We, we oftentimes can forget our blessings, and when we forget our blessings and how uh, much abundance we actually have, we become frustrated and angry, just like the children of Israel did, and now they begin to complain against God, and then God says, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to take care of them, and so I'm going to show them my glory, So the question is, how is God's glory gonna be revealed in this context? And later on down in verse 10, it says, and as Aaron spoke to the whole community of Israel, they looked out toward the wilderness and there they could see the awesome glory of the Lord in a cloud. So in this context, we see whatever the glory is, it comes in the shape of this, clouds have shape, right? This amorphic shape of a cloud. And this is how glory is described in this particular context. Uh, Exodus chapter 24 next little uh, passage on this uh, journey. Exodus chapter 24 verses 15 to 17 says this then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And in verse 16 it says the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. So we see some connection between cloud and glory this little bit of exchange that's going on here and it gets a little bit more poignant verse later, later on it says and on the seventh Day he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. In verse 17, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. So get this, the appearance of the glory begins to take a little bit more of a specified shape in the context of a devouring fire. So let's do a little bit of a summary so far. We see the glory in the shape of a cloud, in the shape of a devouring fire, in the shape of wealth or abundance, or another way of thinking about it is in this concept of like an honored Position or honor or a bestowment of, of power and authority. Uh, gets a little bit more nuanced because the book of Psalms, Psalm 19, says this about the glory of God. It says, And then the heavens they declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. So what does that mean? The heavens declare a cloud? Or the heavens declare a blazing fire? What does this mean? Again, do you understand how this is sometimes a little bit of a challenge for interpreters and, and Bible translators when they're trying to make sense of an ancient language? They're trying to figure out how do we take some of these ancient words like kavod and put them into the, the context in which we read them. So probably it has nothing to do with you know, the heavens declaring the, the radiant fire of God. It's probably more so along the lines of the, the abundant wealth of God, the reputation, if you want to think of it that way. God's reputation. How big is God's reputation? It's pretty big. It fills the entire heavens. <laughs> Think about that. The glory of God, the he- God's reputation, God's greatness, God's wealth, his abundance, his power, his overflow, his bling fills the heavens. That's, that's what the psalmist tells us. Um, Isaiah 60, um, they, the prophets oftentimes they spoke to the people of Israel as kind of like these mediators between God and a nation that's kind of drifted or gone astray. And to understand a little bit about the storyline of the people of Israel, you you know that God actually called uh, the people of Israel to kind of be this representative nation. Not that Israel was unique or special as being better than any other nation. God chose Israel so that through Israel he, he could reveal to every other nation on the planet how great he is. And the way that this was supposed to play out was the people of Israel were to be in this covenant, like a marriage, with God, to where in this marriage, God would be kind of like this leader, and they would say, "Yes, God, we will follow you, we love you, we trust you. And you'll walk in my ways," God would say. But the problem is that Israel was not faithful to God. They did not properly or faithfully or adequately, honor God, or give God glory, if you want to think of it this way, or respect the nature and the personhood and the reputation of God, Israel is basically often out shopping for alternatives, alternative gods, alternative relationships. Again, not too dissimilar from oftentimes how you and I are. We get bored or we get dissatisfied with who God is. So we start shopping. We shop for porn. We shop for uh, other relationships. We shop for significance through a job. We shop. We shop. We just shop. And we rarely ever land. And if we do land on something, it's for a short amount of time until we get burned out from that or it doesn't sustain us. You know what What happens is we end up going through things and at some point they have this overwhelming feeling of weightiness to us, which is what the word kavod means. But at some point, whatever is weighty in our lives begins to become weightless. Have you ever experienced that? Things that once you swooned over, Things that once you saw, and it was like overwhelmingly incredible. Again, I I talk about porn often, but think about porn. Don't think too hard, but think about porn. In our world today, it's a problem. And one of the things they say is that what porn does is it desensitizes you to the actual act of having sex. Think about that. Why? Because you are constantly giving yourself to a fantasy, something that does not exist, but at some point it feels big and weighty and large and huge, it has gravitas. But in overuse, it becomes weightless. You don't have feeling with it anymore. What, what, what's happening? Something is migrating from glorious to losing its glory. Do you understand this? This is this is what's happening. This is the problem. This is what happened with Israel. Is Israel they moved from this relationship with God where God was all glorious to where now these other false gods became glorious. Astra, the goddess of sex and fertility, she became a little bit more glorious for a season. And then when they burned through Astra, they went to Baal or they went to some other pantheon of other gods. And they just kind of migrated from God to God, from experience to experience, from, uh, from scenario from to scenario, because they went through this process of entering into the solar system in the system of something that had gravitas until it didn't have gravitas. Does that make sense? And what God is saying is that my people have drifted so far. They've lost the plot line. And what God is saying through the prophets is that there's going to come a day When Israel will be brought back into the plot line, they'll be restoried into what God is up to in this world. This is where Isaiah chapter 60 says, Arise, shine, for the light has come, and the glory of the Lord has arisen among you. These are like incredible promises that God made because he's saying one of these days, even though Israel has drifted far from its potential and its purpose, I will one day bring them back into this incredible glory that they once had. So let's, again, summarize. So, so far, we can think of glory in terms of like luminance or radiance or cloud or reputation, favor, acceptance, or significance. I think these are ways of depicting or thinking about. Now, again, do all these fit, fit God? Like, is God luminance and radiance? Yes, See, like light, unexplainable. Um, the cloud, again, this image of how do you describe it? Reputation. Does God have a big reputation? Yes, apparently it fills the entire universe. Um, favor and acceptance. Does God have favor and acceptance? Yes, God is capable of showing and demonstrating. Incredible favor and acceptance. Is God significant? Yes. The Another word where some ways in which we would describe the word kavod is heavy. Oh, I'll give you one other example. Okay, I just one came to keep in mind. In this story, I think it's like 1 Samuel, something like that. It's a story of this guy by the name of Eli. This is kind of like an interesting one. So Eli is this prophet. He's... Um, Uh, he, he had a significant role in the people of Israel and he comes to find out that some bad news happens and it says in the story, that and then Eli fell over and died. And you're like, okay, what does that have to do with the story? Like how did, why did Eli fall over and die? Well, there's two bits of information that the storyteller tells us. Number one, Eli was old. So is it possible to fall off of a chair and die if you're old? Maybe, I mean, your bones get a little bit brittle. But there's one other bit of information that the storyteller tells us about Eli that is of great significance. It says, and Eli fell over because he was old and because he had kavod. What does that mean? Uh, It means that he's very fat. That's what it means. Significance. He had weightiness, literally weightiness. This is obviously not in a metaphor that he he had so much kavod, and he was old, that combination of kavod and oldness, when Eli fell over, apparently he snapped his neck and, and died. So, the point I just make is this, is that the word kavod is a, is a, is a highly uh, nuanced word that needs to be understood within its context. And all that being said, we can think about all these things. Let, let, me, let me give you an, an analogy or an example of this on a personal level, and I'll take you into my 13-year-old self uh, bedroom. So, when I was around 13 years old, um, my parents, the stage of my life was around that time was probably not unlike most other teenagers um, where, you know, you're trying to express your own independence and you're discovering what life's all about and, um, and you are learning that there's some level of significance or things that I'm good at or things that I really like and I want to express myself and who I am in certain unique ways. Now, my parents were going through their own crisis moment of divorce, and they ended up getting divorced. So, so around that time, I was like your typical cla- uh, classical latchkey kid, where I was, I was home a lot. And around 13 years old, another thing that ends up happening for a lot of especially 13-year-old boys is they, there's this kind of like stick-it-to-the-man mentality of like, I hate my parents, you know, this rebel uh, self that's just like wanting to express its own individual uniqueness but also at the same time doing so in a unique like aggressive type of a way that was totally me and, uh, and so if you were to come in my room at that time something else significantly hap- significant happened to my life around that time is, uh, I was hanging out with a bunch of friends and around 13 years old we all discovered like surfing so we kind of moved from skateboarding to surfing. We still did skateboarding, but surfing—if you know anything about like surfing or skateboarding, whatever—they're not just sports or, or hobbies. They're like a lifestyle. And I grew up in Huntington Beach, so it's like you know, it's like classic surfing lifestyle down on Huntington Beach. And what's unique about a lifestyle alteration like that is it affects every part of your life. Okay, it affects uh, the clothes you wear, right? It affects. The music you listen to, it affects the people you hang out with. It affects even your vocabulary. The words you begin to say, the words you stop saying, the slang that you kind of pick up. So it's a a total cultural shift and change. Now another thing happened in my life around that time as I began to surf. I discovered surf magazines and music. And music was something about surf magazines and music and surfing and partying and hanging out with my friends. All of this was of great significance in my life. But I had this throne. Like, like, not, not a literal throne, but the throne was called my, my bedroom, and my bedroom became this place where I would tear out images from magazines. I was hang them on the wall. I would showcase. Back in the day, we had we had vinyl. Like there was no other alternative. Like back in the day, because I'm I'm an old guy, um, and we just we listened to vinyl. So I had all of these records of bands that I listened to. And it was kind of this combination of of metal uh, as well as like underground uh, punk. So that was my world. So you come in my room, you would see vinyl albums on the wall from any metal band or from social distortion or whatever, like on my wall as well as pictures of surfers. So you could actually say that this, this, this kingdom, this room is my glory. Everything that I value, everything that I feel I'm somewhat good at or at least thought I was good at or, or enjoyed or, or uh, was a part of my life, this was like this was the temple. Of it all. This this is this is literally the gravitas of who I am. This is my glory. If you were to walk into my room and see all this stuff that I value, and if you were to like start tearing down posters or start destroying my room, you're not just destroying my room, you're actually destroying what images or reflects me. Are you following? The point is, is as a 13-year-old, I owned none of it. I was living In mom and dad's house, eating mom and dad's food, paying for my stuff with mom and dad's money. Everything that I had was on loan. It was borrowed. None of it belonged to me, but I took responsibility and ownership and credit for it all. It was my glory. So as we kind of get back into the storyline, I want to finish with just three things with that idea. Because we all have the same thing. Because every one of us, we have our own unique... And the older we get, the more expansive our glory begins to spread. So your room might open up into your house, which might open up into your backyard, which might open up into your organic farming, which might open up into your garage where you do your artwork, or which might open up into another area where you record music. And music becomes this expression of who you are. It's the glory of who you are inside. And it just expands. And if you own a business or you're an entrepreneur, you begin to express your your creativity, your glory, in all of these unique and expansive ways. You following so far? Yeah? Yeah. Someone at least has said, I get it. Cool, good. All right, both of you, thank you. Um, So as we go on, what I want to finish up with is this larger idea of how does this play into the larger picture of the storyline of the Bible? Because apparently God has glory. What's God's living room? Well, apparently the Bible tells us that the entire universe is God's living room. How glorious is God? Apparently he's overwhelmingly glorious. What has God done to express his glory? This is where the story gets pretty amazing, and I'll wrap it up with a couple of things. So next slide, just a couple of closing thoughts. Number one is glory is what is ultimately truest of God. I mean, there's a number of things that you can say about God. You can say that God is love. You can say that God is um, good. You can say that God is true, all these things. But ultimately, all of these things are extensions of his, his glory, of who he is, his beauty, his goodness, his truth, his grace, His love, all of this is on display, radiating, emanating out from himself. God is glorious. But here's what's amazing about all this, is that God creates all of these things as reflections of his own creativity. The earth demonstrates the glory of God, just like your room and your Instagram feed demonstrates the glory of you. Do you follow? And the question is, is what is God like? Well, just looking at what God has created is pretty amazing. The fact to create babies and the earth, and yes, there are flaws, there's broken things. We'll talk about that in a second, within the whole system that we call this cosmos or this universe. But to begin with, was, we see that God, in his truest self, if you want to think of it that way, is ultimately glorious. But what's amazing about all of this is that God actually shares his Glory with humanity, which moves us on to the very next thing, which is glory is what's ultimately truest with humanity, but with a glitch. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Because what the psalmist tells us, in fact, if you want, you can turn there real quick. Psalm 8, I want to read this. I want to read kind of almost the whole psalm. I just want you to think about this and, and meditate and consider this. These are not my words. In fact, to some, uh, this might come as a shock to some of you as we read through the psalm. But I just want you to listen to what scripture actually teaches and what the Bible actually says about humanity. So just pay attention to, and it might, might be surprising for some. Psalm 8 says this, as this psalmist meditates and reflects upon the opening two pages of the Bible, what we would call the creation narrative. He says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have made and set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I'm just pause and think about this. Have you ever been out on a really, really dark night? It's one of the unique things that we have living on the Central Coast is we don't have this really bad, expansive problem of light pollution. I mean, in some places, it's, it's not the best, but it's definitely way better than, you know, L.A. or Orange County or whatever. Um, but what's really amazing, if you've ever gone camping, like up in Big Sur, and you get up at 2 in the morning or whatever, you're hanging out with a bunch of friends, and in the middle of the night, When everything is dark and every light is turned off, and you walk out, you look up in the sky, and it's perfectly still, and you see this canopy above you that's absolutely mind-blowing. Have you ever had that experience or that moment where maybe you're with a group of friends and you look up and you see this expansive, you know, artwork above your head that's absolutely mind-blowing? And you literally become speechless. You don't know what to say. Another word is breathless. I like that word because it's like you literally lose your breath. You cannot form words or articulate what you're feeling or thinking because it's so mind-blowing to just look up at this expansive. And what happens in that moment is you realize how insignificant you really are. You realize there's something beyond you that is so big and so massive and so monumental that you're just this tiny little bit player on the stage. And when that type of thing happens, it's actually a good feeling of humility or being humbled. It's, in fact, even those moments, I would even say those moments are somewhat sacred. Because what would happen if in that moment you had a group of friends and someone whips out their iPhone and they start laughing you're like, what are you laughing about? They're like, oh my gosh, I'm laughing at this crazy, crazy video of a goat that if you yell loud enough, it faints. You're like, Dude, we're looking at this. Like, that, that's sacrilegious. Don't, don't be talking about stupid videos at a time like this. Like, that's, that's inappropriate, right? And even in that moment, we would recognize there's something of an inappropriate nature to not enter into that moment and just be in awe. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's looking at the stars, and he's blown away by how incredibly beautiful this creation is. And he says, all of this reflects the very glory, the greatness, the radiance of God. Then he goes on in his little song. He says in verse 5, And yet you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings, or angels, and some of your translations might say, how big and powerful and mighty are angels? Well, The Bible doesn't really talk a ton about angels, but what we do know about them is that they're these powerful beings that God created. They're immaterial. Like, like as far as we know from according to the Bible, they are we don't really know much about them and what their makeup is and so on and so forth. But they're these beings, these powerful beings that um, are amazing. And they're a little bit lower than God. And God's saying is that you've made human, human beings a little bit lower than even these heavenly beings, these angels. And yet you've crowned humanity with glory, There's our word, and honor. And he says, and you have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So quick question, is this a high view of man or a low view of man? That's your question. High view of man or low view of man? It's a very high view of man. This might come as a shock to some of you. Because within kind of the Protestant, Western, evangelical world, there has been sort of this mentality of a very low view of man. That Basically, man is pretty trashy and messed up and ruined and just worthless and worth nothing. And part of the problem is that that is derived from this overwhelming reality of sin. Again, like I said, there's a glitch in the system. But what ends up happening, I think, is in one extreme, there is a, there's a tendency to completely throw man into the dust and say he's totally, completely worthless. And on the other hand, you have sort of modern secularism that does not agree with the storyline of the Bible, and yet they recognize we've got to somehow rescue humanity because if humanity only thinks of themselves as nothing more than a formation of cells and other things and atoms, then there's gonna, there, somehow their self Awareness or self-esteem is going to be pretty low in the dust. So we've got to tell them that you're an amazing person. But the problem is there's never really any recognition of the fact that you're broken and messed up. Or something in your life is gone astray or gone awry. And the, the reality is that what the Bible actually paints is a very, very high view of mankind. But like I said, with a glitch. There's something deeply flawed and broken and dysfunctional with regard to humanity. And this is where the Bible describes what Paul would later go on to say. Because again, if you think of it this way. What the psalmist is describing is mankind is so incredible. Mankind literally, if you just step back and look at human beings on this planet, you realize what we are capable of. Mankind literally walks this planet and rules. You understand that? Now, there are other creatures on this planet that build and create and do things. I think of ants. They're pretty amazing. They have a pretty good work system and a very good work ethic, apparently. And other animals, they create dens and create other things. But... That's that's radically different than creating a performing arts center, and then having somebody else create a symphony with like 25 instruments, and then somebody else selling tickets and creating seats and creating this atmosphere and good food and good enjoyment to where this radical experience sitting in an incredibly huge auditorium inside, listening to this music, and having this incredible aesthetic experience. There's nothing to compare that to on planet Earth. And what the Bible says is that all of that is because human beings bear the image of God. We are made to rule and created to reflect something of the glory of God. And we do that. The Problem is, that's not all that we do. That's where the glitch comes in the system. Because this is where Paul would basically go on to say that when God created Adam and Eve, puts him in the garden, and he says, I'm giving you, I'm gifting to you all that you have, This whole garden, this whole earth, everything, multiply, rule and reign over this planet. But then God tells them, in order to do that well, will require vast amounts of wisdom and understanding to do it right. Because even though this whole earth and creation is good, there are things in this world that will require a good usage of wisdom, that will require an understanding of right and wrong, good, good and evil. In order to discern what good and evil comes from, God says, you'll need to be in relationship with me and I'll guide you, I'll lead you, I'll show you what is right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, and I will coach you along, and as you partner with me, as you live in agreement with me and walk with me, again, there's some of our Christian language, if you walk with me in that relationship, you will walk into the path of rightness and making uh, into goodness, and I will lead you in that path, but that's not the story, because Genesis chapter three, the third page of the Bible tells us that what ends up happening is Adam and Eve, rather than walking in relationship, and honor, and love, and receptivity of God, they turned their back on God. In essence, what they were basically saying is that we feel that we are equipped, and adept, and capable of making our own decisions of right and wrong ourselves. And as a result of that, they chose something that God said, do not take. The moment you take of this will lead you on a path of death. Have you ever done that? Have you ever experienced something? Have you ever gone willingly, knowingly down a path where all sorts of other people around you are saying, don't go that path. If you go that path, it will lead to death and brokenness and hurt and pain and sorrow and loss, not only to yourself, but also to everybody else around you that you claim to love. The fact of the matter is we as human beings, we are incapable of making our decisions ultimately towards right and wrong. And God says, I'll help you with this. I'll guide you through this. I will lead you through this. And it requires you to be in this relationship with me. And Adam and Eve, ultimately, along with all of humanity, turn their back on God. And as a result of that, brings incredible dysfunctionality and brokenness into not only the relationship with God, but also into the relationship with each other and the relationship with their environment. In other words, this is what Paul would say. And again, as we enter back into the storyline, in Romans chapter three, verse 23, Paul says this famous verse that many of you probably have heard before. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, all humanity, not one person, has escaped this or has somehow outflanked this. Every human being has somehow missed this mark of reflecting, of demonstrating. We are like 13-year-olds in mom and dad's house, eating mom and dad's food, laying claim, saying we are the owners of this household. We own this place. It all belongs to us. It's all the result of my greatness. And God says, all humanity has drifted and lost the plot line. And fallen short and far away from this glory that God has bestowed upon humanity. As a result of that, he says, the wages of sin leads to death and brokenness. And that's the world that we live in, a great death and great brokenness, but commingled with and punctuated by moments of beauty and glory and sunrises and sunsets and children's being born and incredible experiences with aurora Borealis and amazing things that we see in this world but the fact of the matter is this is the bible's storyline of describing all this in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 2 Paul would later say this he says we have been made right in God's sight by faith we have peace with God because of what Jesus has done for us Christ has brought us into a place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing here's what Paul says God's Just think about that phrase. Three words. Sharing God's glory. Whatever it is that God has. Massive. You can say it's weighty because that's what the word in Hebrew means. It's weighty. Does God's weightiness ever wane in weightiness? Is it like porn? Is it like a sexual experience? Hmm. Is it like a person that might be glorious for a season in their life? Conor McGregor. And then degrade or degenerate into a shame. No. God's glory is always eternal and high and powerful and profound and life giving, regenerating, self regenerating over and over and over again. This is what you might call eternal life. And yet God says, This glory I will share with those that have defamed me. How's that possible? Because ultimately this brings us back to the story of Jesus, where Jesus ultimately is what we would describe as the fullness of God, the glory of God. This is what John chapter one, verse 14 says this. The word, a reference to Jesus, became flesh, he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So something about Jesus was glorious. Was he a really good looking guy? Was he burning? Was he like a fire? He was just a human being, but something about him had this gravitas what did God's glory look like when he interacted with human beings? Well, it's amazing because you can follow the story of Jesus and realize what God's glory looks like when it interacts with human beings. It looks like crippled old women who were marginalized and forgotten being restored to the community. It looks like people that were tormented by voices and demons who felt like cutting themselves and committing suicide being brought back into a right mind. It looked like women who were caught in an act of sexual adultery and pushed off into the margins and wanting to be stoned, welcomed back into the heart of things. It looks like people that were once sick and crippled being made whole again. That's what it looks like when the glory of God comes into a person's life. It reorients and restores us to something that we've lost. And he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 1, the New Testament writer says this, long ago, you gotta love stories that start with in a galaxy long, long ago. Long ago, many times, uh, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, though whom also he created the world. He is the radiance, Jesus. Listen, Jesus is the radiance, of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So the writer of Hebrews then spends the rest of the book unpacking for us why Jesus is so amazing. Because here's what he does. He doesn't just come into the world and flash his glory and say, now everybody be like me. Because he knows we can't be like him. It's not good advice that Jesus came to bring. It's good news. And what that means is Jesus comes acknowledging the fact that we as human beings, though created in the image of God, created with a glory that is incomparable by any other creature or species on this planet, we have squandered it. And we've vandalized it. And we've ruined it. And we've distorted it. And we've crushed it. And yet God says, I want to do something about the vandalization that you as human beings have repeatedly and consistently done by coming into this world, taking upon myself the inglorious moments that you have created of suffering and betrayal and ultimately death in order to create something brand new and glorious. That's what The writer of Hebrews would say, this is what it means to have our sins pure, to have our wrongdoings, those things that we have committed, our acts of vandalization upon God and upon his goodness to be undone, to be reversed, to be washed and cleansed and forgiven. This is an amazing reality that God invites us into. I'm going to finish by reading a little section out of uh, C.S. Lewis's works called the Weight of Glory. If you guys have never read this, honestly, like I've I've read I've read a lot of books, but this is this is literally like one of the top like three books that has like radically shaped and just impacted me in profound ways. Uh, you can pick it up on Amazon for super cheap as a used book, is what I oftentimes do. So let me just let me just read this to you. I want you to listen to this and then I'll wrap this up and we'll respond. Cecilou says this. In the end, the face which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory that's inexpressible or inflicting shame that could never be cured or disguised. Think about that. I'm saying that there's, there's a day all humanity will have an appointment to meet with their creator face to face. They will either enter in and see the eyes of the one who created them with this profound welcome an invitation to enter in. Or they will feel this overwhelming sense of shame and moral ineptitude in which we have not achieved or not kept our end or have not done something that brings him honor and glory. He goes on to say, he says, how God thinks of us is not only more important but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it relates to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him. We shall appear, we shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses should actually survive that examination shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist, delights in a work or in a father or in a son or as a father and a son it seems almost impossible it almost seems like as if it's a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts and our minds can hardly sustain but it is so his whole point is that this is what God means that we will enter into glory that Jesus says one day you will come in and I will say enter into the joy of God now this will radically as I end on this You have to think about this. How do you think of God? Because many of us, the way that we think of God, we spend much of our lives thinking about God as if God is mildly disgusted with us. And the way that we think about God, that will shape how you worship, that will shape how you respond, that will shape how you do what you do, how you spend your money, how you spend your private time, who you are in private. It will shape the type of husband you'll become, the type of wife, the type of mom, the type of dad, the type of student, the type of everything. It will absolutely reshape everything on the landscape of your life. Why? Because it has to do with the subject of glory. You will either see God as this glorious weighty, profoundly powerful, amazing, glorious God. Again, we we run out of adjectives that confers his love upon you. Or you will live your life feeling like you've got to do something to be appreciated by him, valued by him. Let's pause and think about this as human beings. How much of our energy do we oftentimes spend trying to please people we don't really like just to somehow get on their good side and this could be a father who has a or a son who has a father wound that is always feeling like dad's mad at him so he's trying to always get within his graces or a daughter that's trying to get mom to like her or somebody who's working for a Very heavy-handed boss trying to get on their good side or a roommate where you're always having to tiptoe around them. Somebody of value and significance and of importance of gravitas, of glory in your life where you're trying to get their attention and get their approval. Do you realize how exhausting that path is? Because let's just say for a moment you get their attention. Let's just say you get the sponsorship. You get the job. You get the affection. You get the marriage. You get the date. You get the whatever. How long will that last before you have to go back on the treadmill again and start the whole whole thing all over again? Is this true? But do you understand what the scripture is telling us is that this story of God's glory is of any sense true. What it means is that we have a God that might not fit the bill of how some of us have thought about him. But in fact, he actually might be far more beautiful and glorious and desirable than you've ever even imagined. That he is actually a God that loves you, cares for you, even though we are broken and flawed and we played into the very vandalization of the very thing that he's given to us. We are like 13-year-olds living at home, eating dad's food, living in his property, and saying, this is all mine. And God says, no, it's not. You've vandalized, you've misappropriated, you've misused all that I've given you. And yet, I will make it right through my actions of Jesus on the cross, and I invite you to walk in a renewed relationship with me. And that is what C.S. Lewis describes, the Bible describing as glory, God conferring his profound love upon you. So I want to finish by way of response. I have the worship team come on up, and as it's are coming up, I want to just ask this question as we begin to respond. The question to consider is, is, how do we glorify God? Because that's again one of those things, like how do we do this? Like, how, What does it look like to actually glorify God? It's one of those like Christian phrases, like, "Let's just glorify God. That's cool. What does that mean? Right glorify God. Um, I think actually the scripture tells us very clearly exactly what it means to glorify God. And I'll, I'll read the passage. It's Revelation chapter four verse 10 it says this, "Then I saw the 24 elders, they fell down and they worshiped the one who is sitting upon the throne, the one who lives forever." And ever, and it says, And then they laid their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive, and there's a phrase, to receive glory. So apparently there's something about laying these crowns before the throne of God, whatever that means, that is directly adjacent or connected to this concept of glory, glorifying. So what, let's, let's ask the question, what's a crown? Metaphorically, what does that mean? I, I would say, I think, scripturally, from the metaphor that's being used here, the, the crown represents the sum total of who you are. Your accolades. What are the things that you're uniquely good at that your neighbor is not? What are the things that you look at and you take a little bit of sense of joy or pride in it? Maybe you're a musician or an artist or a photographer or you're a pretty darn good business person. You know how to make money. What are those things that you look at in your life as you order your bedroom and as you place whatever those metaphorical posters are up on the wall and you look at it. You either derive a sense of arrogance and pride of like, I'm amazing. Everybody else is not. Or sometimes this overwhelming sense of like, I got to keep up the game because I know that if if I don't keep up the game, I'm going to be disapproved by somebody. I think the sum total of whatever that is, that would be defined as a crown. I think what worship is, glorifying God, is taking that crown, your sum total of your accolades, and saying, All of this, everything that I've ever done, everything that I've ever felt that I'm good at, I will lay it down at His feet. Because compared to His glory, it's a stick. It's just a piece of hay. In comparison, it might have value but it's not lasting as is his glory and I will exchange it all to worship the one who is worthy the shocking thing that often what happens in that circumstance is God says I'm going to give it back to you take what I've given you and go reign and go organize your bedroom and go place your posters and go do all your creativity for my glorious namesake That's the invitation that God calls us to be a part of. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know how response will look like for you, but I want to invite you to this. So why don't we all stand as we go to the table, as we eat the bread, drink the cup, as we sing, as we respond. um, I want to invite you to respond. So maybe you're here this morning, and either you're not a Christian, or you're somebody that has had some level of familiarity with Christianity, and in your heart you're saying, and you trust this God because I've been building my kingdom and it keeps falling apart, being vandalized and being broken or others are destroying or disrupting it and it's exhausting and you are exhausted because you're spending all your energy trying to be noticed when you've completely forgotten the fact that the very one person in the entire universe has always noticed you from day one even before day one and he loves you so I don't know where you're at if you're not a Christian if you're somebody that's kind of wrestling with faith I'd love to pray with you I'd love to give you that opportunity to pray and I'm, I'm going to pray right now I'll just pray a simple prayer if that's you you can just pray along with me it's a prayer it's like trusting Jesus and then we'll continue to respond and sing so if that's you just repeat after me in your own heart you don't have to say it out loud so Jesus right now I recognize that I have made a mess of my life you've given me much and God I want to trust you with all that I am and I ask you God right now that you would make me new and wash me cleanse me forgive me Restore in me, through me, the glory that represents who you are. So Jesus, be my hope and my Savior right now. I want to pray over us now just as a group as we sing. Um, Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. As we sing right now, God, as we respond, um, receive our worship. God that you take great delight, great joy in your people and all creation you've done something about our, our rebellion our sin, it's called the cross we trust what Jesus has done uh, if you're here this morning and, and, you, and you prayed that prayer, I'd love to just continue to pray for you um, just love to just know who you are. Would, would, you, would you mind just raising your hand? Everyone knows eyes are closed. It's not about spectacles. It's just about me knowing. So I like can pray for you. That's you, and you raise your hand. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Anybody else? Just love to keep praying for you. Right. So let's respond to God right now. we like taking the bread and the cup singing. If you hear here you pray for anything else that's going on in your life, um, my encouragement would be, you know, just make your way up to the front. I'd love to pray with you. There's some rugs in the front. You want to just get on your, your knees before God as a physical act of saying, God, here's some sum of my life. So let's sing.